next met with Dr. Edith Perez, and to begin, we discussed neoadjuvant treatment and specifically the issue of management of the axilla. We typically do you know, an ultrasound, and that is done fairly commonly, although the data related to an ultrasound ahead of any surgical procedure are fairly soft, but that has become you know, very commonly done. But typically, the definite evaluation of the sentinel node is conducted after neoadjuvant therapy. And how do you approach the patients? And I know there are a couple of big trials looking at management of patients, the axilla and the neoadjuvant situation. How do you approach it in terms of when do you do axillary dissection, when do you do axillary radiation? Yeah, I mean, these are questions that are central to patient management. And these national trials are critically important to appropriately answer the questions. Because one of the issues in breast cancer is, you know, whether we need to do axillary dissection on many patients and whether these patients should indeed receive radiation therapy or not. And we don't have the data yet, so we follow, you know, the general schema of Z11 in terms of making decisions in the adjuvant setting. But for neoadjuvant, you know, we are doing a study in the Alliance addressing this issue, and we hope to get support from many people around the U.S. so we can complete the trials. What are some of the other local therapy issues that come up in patients who've had neoadjuvant therapy, particularly the issue of post-op radiation therapy? There are two main issues. Number one is the extent of radiation that should be administered. And number two, people have been questioning whether surgery is indeed needed for patients who have a complete response, let's say, by PET scan or MRI. And you know, based on the data that we have, both local therapies remain extremely important for patient management. So radiation remains very important for patients who undergo lumpectomy. And certainly, I think surgery is still mandatory in patients who receive neoadjuvant therapy. You know, we had some older data. We suggested that eliminating surgery was not a good idea. So I think we need to be very careful with jumping the gun because we have achieved what appears to be a good response to systemic therapy. How does your team approach the evaluation of patients as they go through neoadjuvant therapy? Do the surgeons see the patient while they're receiving neoadjuvant therapy? What kind of imaging do you do and when? Well, I tell you, you're touching on very important issues for clinical practice. And right now, we don't have any proof that ordering an MRI, you know, in the middle of the systemic therapy really alters outcome. And that really can increase the costs of patient management. So we would not advise for physicians to use that approach. In terms of just before the decision for surgery, I think our surgeons are actually changing a little bit or evolving in terms of their thinking. Because a couple of years ago, we were doing more MRIs before surgery than we are today. You know, these days it's mainly a matter of physical examination, and we are not doing as many MRIs. How predictive are MRIs, or for that matter, other forms of imaging, PET scanning, whatever, in terms of predicting PATH-CR? They're not very good predictors. So we need to be very careful with this. One other question related to triple negative disease. In that situation where the patient wants breast conservation, but the surgeon really would like to see the tumor shrink down, you know, the situation you mentioned before, I guess not that common, but some does occur in a triple negative tumor, what type of treatment would you use in that situation? Would you use a platinum, for example? I think platinum agents are active in the setting of breast cancer. And if the goal is really to achieve pathological complete response, then we would need to use platinum because we have three studies already showing that 
they add to pathological CR. But I am not as convinced as other people of the true value of PATCR in terms of overall survival. And platinum agents do lead to some increased toxicity. So we're not recommending platinum agents for every woman who's diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer. But there are a couple of important issues that we are thinking about because of early trials. One of them, you know, is it that patients who have mutations of BRCA, who the ones who respond the best to platinum agents. And there were some very interesting data presented at ASCO showing that in terms of short-term responses, yes, patients with BRCA mutations have a higher response rate in the metastatic setting, but BRCA mutations did not impact progression-free or overall survival. So I think the data are not as clear as we once thought. But there's another test that is being considered, currently investigational, but I think important for people to know about. And it is we're interested in testing for what we call homologous recombination defects in tumors. And that may be the clue to determine what patients may benefit the most from platinum agents. Is this so-called brackenness? That is correct, yes. So what's, you know, we used to talk about that all the time when PARP inhibitor, was, we were all excited about iniparib and all, but I haven't even kept up to date. What are some of the markers, I guess, of either brackenness or you know, predictions of response to, I guess, I don't know, platinums, other alkylating agents? Yeah, people are looking at not only mutations of BRCA, but mutations of other genes that may be important for DNA repair. And then the other market, it's really high on the list, is this homologous recombination evaluation. People have looked at other things like P6C3, and it has not really correlated with outcome. People have looked at ERCC1, and the data are really conflicting there. So again, we're looking at recombination defects as the likely candidate to evaluate in the next set of trials. So let's move on and talk about ER-positive HER2-negative disease. Again, the situation of the patient who's had a biopsy and now is being presented in an interdisciplinary tumor board or seen by a bunch of interdisciplinary people. How do you think through the question there of neoadjuvant therapy and what situations do you think about it? In the clinical setting, we are less interested, if I may use that term, to recommend hormonal therapy in the neoadjuvant setting unless the patient has agreed to participate in a clinical trial addressing some scientific questions. And the reason for that, Neil, is that for effectiveness of hormonal therapy, we really need five years. And the likelihood that the patients will achieve a significant diminution of tumor size in the neoadjuvant setting by administering hormones for three months it's really not that high. What about neoadjuvant chemotherapy in patients with this subset? In what situations do you do it, and how do you determine which regimen? I tell you, I mean, I love your questions. I wish we had some more information related to gene profiles, such as Oncotype DX, and there's a little bit of data, actually, with Oncotype DX, but we need more information with PAM50, things like Mamaprint, to help us determine which patients with ER-positive disease have higher likelihood of responding to chemotherapy. But we need to do those studies. I mean, I've been unable to answer the question for a long time why that isn't getting done. I mean, it's just, it's the same biology, it's the same tumor, it's just like, you know, earlier. But nobody seems interested in it. Well, I'm interested in it. Well, that's good. (laughs) I mean, do you ever do it in your own practice? I mean, it kind of makes sense. Suppose you have a patient who has a, you know, T3 lesion, In general, what are you going to do? Yeah, we give those patients chemotherapy. But I can tell you of a trial that is being done right now in the United States through the Alliance. 
and it's called the alternate trial. Right. And in that trial, you know, we're enrolling patients with ER positive breast cancer who are going to be willing to have repeat biopsies. And what we're doing there is testing both ER and testing also K67, which we do not routinely do in our clinic, but it's being tested in that trial in a very consistent way. That's the so-called Matt Ellis thing, in my view, right? Where he does the key 67 before and after neoadjuvant hormonal therapy. But I mean, in the patient, you said if the patient has locally advanced ER positive HER2 negative disease, you're gonna give them chemotherapy. And I mean, are there situations where you'd wanna see, you know, a 21 gene recurrence score or some kind of predictor in making that decision? You just give everybody chemo. I think, you know, none of the gene profiles have received even clear recommendation or certainly FDA recommendation. And as you know, right now, there's only one of those tests that has received, you know, true FDA approval, because even for the mamaprine, the FDA approval is for the frozen and not for the paraffin embedded testing. And Oncotabie has never received FDA approval. But I think in the clinic, it's something reasonable to consider. But there may be issues with reimbursement. Right. So let's move on to, I guess, the most fast-moving part of neoadjuvant therapy, patients with HER2-positive tumors. So again, I would say to you, which of those patients do you want to see? And which of these patients are you going to be really, you know, encouraging the patient to get neoadjuvant therapy? You know, the principles of neoadjuvant therapy are very similar from triple negative and HER2-positive in terms of the clear patients who need neoadjuvant therapy, large tumors, palpable notes on physical examination, inflammatory breast cancer. But there's an added factor in the setting of HER2-positive disease, and it is the accelerated approval of pertuzumab that occurred about a year ago that I think is important to understand in a deeper way, if I may say, because pertuzumab received the accelerated approval based on a variety of factors. And I think the most important factor was that pertuzumab had been demonstrated to clearly improve progression-free and overall survival in the metastatic setting. That was the number one reason. Number two, pertuzumab had been demonstrated to improve pathological complete response in several trials. And number three, pertuzumab adds very little toxicity to a standard regimen of chemotherapy trastuzumab. Plus, the fourth issue is that an adjuvant trial testing whether pertuzumab adds to ACTH or TCH and pertuzumab had already been completed. So all of the pieces were already completed. And I think the FDA made the right decision to allow pertuzumab to receive accelerated approval. But I think it's a very unique situation because of those four components had already been completed. And I guess we should be clear that pertuzumab is not approved in the adjuvant setting, although there's been some debate and the NCCN has made some statements about whether it should be considered. But at least from the point of view of the FDA, you can only give it pre-op. That is correct. And I completely agree with the FDA recommendation. And I would not consider pertuzumab an agent to recommend out of the clinical trial setting in the adjuvant setting. We just do not have the data. So maybe just another word about why pertuzumab seems to be so helpful, as you mentioned, with pretty little, if any, additional toxicities. How does it work? And what's the thinking about why it gives such a big bump in terms of both, as you said, neoadjuvant results as well as metastatic disease when it's added to chemotherapy, usually a taxane plus trastuzumab? The HER2 protein, you know, has really been an amazing marker, both prognostic and predictive, 
in the setting of breast cancer, actually, and other malignancies. And in addition to targeting, you know, the extracellular domain of this protein with trastuzumab, you know, pertuzumab works in a slightly different way as it seems to target the dimer of HER2 with HER3. And studies clearly demonstrated in the metastatic setting that pertuzumab is synergistic, if we may use that term, with trastuzumab. So although they both target the extracellular portion of the HER2 protein, they work together quite well. Actually, pertuzumab alone has very little activity in the metastatic HER2-positive setting. So in preclinical models, they worked well together. In the metastatic setting, they worked well together. And certainly in the neoadjuvant setting, the data are supportive of the good idea for the combination. So the FDA approval in the neoadjuvant setting stipulates that the tumor either has to be over two centimeters or be node positive. When you see patients like that, are you, first of all, recommending neoadjuvant therapy? And if so, do you include pertuzumab? Yes, we are. We're trying to follow the FDA accelerated approval recommendation, but we're not really following the NCCN recommendation to consider this in the adjuvant setting. Again, we are consistent with the FDA recommendation. Right. I guess we should clarify what the NCCN said was, well, if the patient has the surgery, then they can get the same pertuzumab they would have gotten pre-op, and it certainly is very controversial. But just sort of getting back to this neoadjuvant situation, so you're saying these are the patients you'd like to see. Any sense about whether or not these patients actually are getting to oncologists to be considered for this treatment or not, either in a tertiary or community setting? I think there's still some needed education related to this fact, but it's also important to realize that we yet do not know if pertuzumab improves survival. But the benefit that we're having in 2014 is that we have more interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary discussions when patients are diagnosed with breast cancer. So there's an opportunity of us to educate each other related to newer strategies that impact patient care. Any guesses, or maybe you've seen some data, because people always cite the fact, you know, you talk to people and say, well, we have this interdisciplinary meeting, we go through all the cases, et cetera. But There's certainly people out there who are getting surgery without going through this process. I think that there are a lot of people, but any guess sort of nationally what fraction of patients with breast cancer really are getting input from a surgeon and medical oncologist pre-op? You know, Neil, this question has not been properly addressed, and I think this would be a great opportunity because, again, things are changing for patient management, and these patients, I think, benefit from having multidisciplinary consultations. So, I mean, I'm just thinking about a patient. She's got a 2.2 centimeter infiltrating ductal cancer. The surgeon's, you know, looking at her. She's totally fine for breast conservation. Biopsy comes back, and it's HER2 positive. Mm-hmm. A very interesting scenario. One of the good things about these multidisciplinary discussions is that, you know, the surgeon remains such central part of patient management. And I think it's really helpful when the surgeons understand our thinking as medical oncologists related to what's next. So the surgeon can help us introduce the concepts to the patients early. Yeah, I mean, I'm really excited about this because I think it's a great education opportunity. I mean, it's kind of something that's sort of been on everybody's radar, but this is a real change in paradigm. This patient that I just described would not go to a medical oncologist, you know, up until a year ago. And if she's ER positive or triple negative, you can make the argument right now whether they need to. But this is a pretty strong argument right now. 
What about the patients who are less than two centimeters, but, you know, thinking about this idea of you know what they're going to get. So, for example, they're 1.5 centimeters, whatever. You know what you're going to give them post-op adjuvantly. Is there a rationale to give it to them pre-op instead? Not really, because the outcome is the same. And we've learned, you know, with the follow-up time that patients actually with small HER2-positive tumors do very well with adjuvant chemotherapy and trastuzumab. And I think it's going to be actually quite difficult to ever show that adding a second antiher to therapy is going to have a major impact there. So could I give you a different argument? Sure, go ahead. So how about if I make the argument that if I've got a patient who has a 1.5 centimeter HER2 positive, let's say ER negative tumor, that I know they're going to get chemotherapy and trastuzumab post-op. I probably will know right now what that's going to be, although I guess if maybe the nodal status could change that. And I would say the reason that I want to see my patient get neoadjuvant therapy, because if they have residual disease, they can go in the Catherine trial and get TDM1. Oh, that you're giving me a different scenario because we're thinking about a clinical trial. How's that one? Okay, that's true. Well, well, you know, the thing is, some (laughs) clinical trials are clinical. I mean, you can't give TDM1 that way outside of protocol. Okay, (laughs) so you're right. I slipped it by you, but how do you like that argument? Oh, I love that as an alternative thinking, of course. I really think that we found, you know, through many trials, so the benefit of trastuzumab, we found out that pertuzumab is a good drug, and now there's a lot of interest to figure out what the role of TDM1 will be. Can you kind of take a step back and sort of explain what TDM1 is and what we're seeing in the clinic right now with TDM1 in the metastatic setting? Yes. So we have essentially three monoclonal antibodies right now that target HER2, trastuzumab, pertuzumab, and the third one is TDM1. So TDM1 is a combination of trastuzumab with a chemotherapeutic agent, and they're linked. So it's what we call a targeted, targeted agent, or a drug antibody conjugate. And this medication is given you know, once every three weeks intravenously. We have been studying it in metastatic disease now for about five to six years. And there are a variety of publications that are coming out this year. Actually, there was a very good publication that just came out in Lancet Oncology last month of a study called the TERESA trial. But TDM1 has been demonstrated to improve survival in the refractory HER2-positive metastatic setting. We have recently completed accrual to a large global trial called Marianne, in which we're looking at TDM1 in the first-line setting. And I expect the results of that trial to be available in early 2015. So added to the interest of TDM1 in the metastatic setting due to its efficacy and really beneficial toxicity profile is that we're really trying to move this agent to the adjuvant setting. So several trials are being conducted. You mentioned the Catherine trial in the post-neoadjuvant setting. There's an adjuvant trial being conducted. And there's actually another adjuvant trial being considered for development. And it is in patients with older age who have small tumors. So the question is TDM1 versus standard chemotherapy plus free trastuzumab will be an elegant study. Right. I wanted to actually ask you about that study, but going back to the Catherine study. So in general, you know, certainly a lot of people get PATH-CRs who have HER2-positive disease, but a substantial number of people. What's your current working number? 50, 60% of PATH-CR? 
Yeah, it's about 50%, yes. So, but you still have 50% with residual disease, and these patients typically are going to get a year of trastuzumab, just the way people do in the adjuvant setting. And this NSABP trial, I, th- I mean, and knowing that, you still are going to have risk of relapse with just trastuzumab. So they're comparing TDM1 to the standard trastuzumab. To me, it seems like a really attractive study to be in. What kinds of toxicities would you expect? You know, it is the adjuvant setting when you get TDM1 alone. In the metastatic disease, you don't see hair loss. What do you see? Yeah, I mean, it's a really amazing drug. As I mentioned, we've been using it for more than five years. And to observe patients with metastatic disease receiving this agent, you wouldn't know. Just look at the patient because the toxicity is so low. But there are two particular toxicities that we pay attention to from mainly the laboratory standpoint. Number one is elevation of transaminases or liver enzymes. And number two is thrombocytopenia. They tend to be actually quite manageable. And it's very rare that we have to stop TDM1 because of those toxicities. So you said there was another adjuvant trial being discussed or... Yeah, yeah, it's for patients who are older than 65 years of age, who have small tumors. So a potential discussion is TDM1 versus taxane or paclitaxel in combination with trastuzumab. And I think that could be a very elegant study, very manageable for physicians in their practices, and certainly very good for our patients. I was going to ask you about that is, you know, sort of a follow-up to the study that was reported last year at San Antonio where they use a less toxic, shorter approach to adjuvant therapy in the HER2-positive situation of just the taxane, paclitaxel, and trastuzumab for 12 weeks. Can you talk about what they looked at there, what they found, and what you think it means? A very important trial because the chemotherapy backbone to the anti-HER2 approach has been either anthracycline followed by a taxane or a non-anthracycline regimen using docetaxel and carboplatin with very good outcomes. So in this trial, which we call the APT trial, the chemotherapy backbone was weekly paclitaxel for 12 doses along with concurrent trastuzumab. And with a follow-up of about three years, the disease-free survival was really very good in the range of about 97%. So I think in patients in which we think they have a low risk, quote unquote, of recurrence, using the paclitaxel chemotherapy as backbone is an appropriate consideration. How would you compare what it's like to go through this regimen compared to some of the other regimens in terms of quality of life and how long it takes? Yeah, the chemotherapy portion takes three months. So that could be really good for our patients as the standard AC followed by TH takes about four and a half months. If we look at TCH, the chemotherapy portion takes about four months. So it's a little bit less time with chemotherapy by about a month. In terms of tolerability, certainly easier for the patient. But I would caution, you know, this is a regimen that we have not tested in patients with large tumors or a lot of positive nodes. So for patients who we think have a higher risk of recurrence, still ACTH or TCH remain the standards. So what kinds of situations would you use this paclitaxel trastuzumab regimen? For example, would you use it in a younger woman who had a small node-negative tumor? It depends how you define younger. But if you're thinking of a patient who is 45 years of age, a patient who is 50 years of age, who has a one and a half centimeter tumor, that will be an appropriate patient to be considered for this weekly paclitaxel trastuzumab regimen. What do patients tell you and how do you compare as you watch people go through this regimen quality life-wise? Is it significantly different or not that much difference? 
maybe a little bit different, but not too much, you know. These chemotherapy agents can have some toxicities acutely, but fortunately for our patients, most of them recover from the toxicities of chemotherapy. So chemotherapy remains an important backbone for management of patients with HER2-positive disease, but we and others are continuing to look what is the least toxic chemotherapy we can use and what is the shortest duration of chemotherapy that will optimize patient care. You know, where this comes in a lot are the small node negative tumors. What's new in terms of understanding the prognosis, you know, particularly under a sonometer? There was a meta-analysis that was presented at ASCO. What do you say to your patients who have a half a sonometer, you know, 0.8 sonometer, HER2-positive disease, and do you tell them different things if they're ER-positive or negative? We participated in the meta-analysis that was presented by Ciara Sullivan from the NCI, in which we aggregated the data from all of the large adjuvant studies. And when we looked at patients with smaller tumors or bigger tumors, we clearly showed that trastuzumab adds to the benefit of chemotherapy. So that's a very important concept. But in terms of the magnitude of improvement, although the relative improvement is the same, you know, the absolute improvement is different because biology is important, but anatomy also remains an important component of the prognosis of patients with HER2-positive breast cancer. But we treat these patients with combination chemotherapy and trastuzumab at this point. So we are not moving to giving trastuzumab without chemotherapy, and we are not using chemotherapy alone. So a lot of people have talked about around a half a centimeter is the time they start back and off given anything. Is that the way you approach it? Yeah, that is the way we approach in general. But I tell you, we've had patients with even smaller tumors. And I must say, you know, a 35-year-old with a 4-millimeter tumor, HER2-positive, especially ER-negative, PR-negative, it's a patient we would have a good discussion about using chemotherapy. And in this setting, I would use the weekly paclitaxel in combination with trastuzumab. So I want to ask you about the big plenary presentation at the ASCO meeting on the ALTO trial. I was actually flashing back on an interview that I did with you in early 2005 when you said, hey, we have this idea for this trial. <laughs> and so now, you know, nine years later, it gets presented. Incidentally, you know, in that interview, I was reflecting back, that was February 2005, so three months before the adjuvant trastuzumab stuff was. Matter of fact, you told me in that interview that it was going to be presented. And that was the first time anybody knew that it was going to be presented in May. And the thing that was amazing, I don't know if I ever told you, we had done a national survey about the same time as that interview. And we presented a young, like a 42-year-old patient with 10 positive nodes who was HER2 positive. And just about everybody, investigators and docs in practice said, no, I would not give adjuvant trastuzumab. Of course, three months later, everything completely changed. Anyhow, so finally, the data gets presented, it's published in Lancet. Maybe you can kind of go through A to Z, what you looked at. I know we could talk about this for a couple hours, but just sort of the bottom line of what you looked at, what was seen, and what you think it means. Yeah, ALTO was a very important global trial. It showed that we can really work together with people from other countries, including patients, certainly. You know, in ALTO, we enrolled more than 8,300 women. And the idea behind ALTO was to exploit the amazing preclinical data that had been obtained combining trastuzumab with another anti-HER2 agent, which was lapatinib. So this study essentially had four different ways of administering anti-HER2 therapy. All of the anti-HER2 therapy was given for one year. For patients outside of the United States, the trastuzumab and lapatinib were provided free of charge 
for the patients in the U.S., the lapatinib, of course, was provided free of charge. So, you know, as I think of Alto, just in terms of the principles of the study, we were following science. Number two, we made trastuzumab available to thousands of women outside of the United States who would have otherwise had difficulty receiving the agents. But essentially what we found was that lapatinib alone was not a good choice, but we found that adding lapatinib did not add to the benefit of trastuzumab. So essentially for three of the arms in this study, the patients all did about the same. For the patients who received lapatinib alone, we found out back in 2011 that the data did not appear to be that good. So we recommended that those patients be switched to trastuzumab. And ultimately, this study helped us determine various things. Number one, trastuzumab should remain the standard of care adjuvant therapy for patients with HER2-positive breast cancer. And number two, the cardiac safety of this regimen appeared to be very good, even though 97% of the patients received anthracycline backbone as part of the chemotherapy. And number three, we found out that many patients, you know, can benefit when we do clinical trials together. And number four, there are some other aspects that I think match very well with the discussion we've been having today, and it is the value of neoadjuvant pathological complete response versus what we see in the adjuvant setting. Because as you remember, in NeoAlto, we showed an amazing improvement in PATH-CR by adding lapatinib to trastuzumab. I want to move on now, actually, and talk about a couple other things I have on my list of things to do, so to speak. And one is the issue of management of adjuvant therapy in the ER-positive setting, and particularly the issue of younger patients and premenopausal patients. Again, part of the plenary ASCO session this year was data from the and soft trial that got published. What did those trials look at, and how did that affect your practice, if at all? Yeah, there were two central questions that are important for premenopausal women in terms of breast cancer per se, not talking about fertility and other lifestyle issues. And the two questions are, number one, should tamoxifen remain the standard of care? And number two, if ovarian function suppression has a role or should have a role in their management, okay? But the third question has been, well, if we do ovarian function suppression recommendation, what systemic therapy should be recommended? And what the presentation by Olivia Arasco addressed was this third question, which was, as you see, not the two top tier questions. It was the third question in terms of priorities, but very important. So the soft trial is, as a very quick summary, is a three-arm trial that enrolled premenopausal women, ER positive, who were or were not going to have chemotherapy based on investigator's discretion. And their endovisation was to one of three arms, tamoxifen, ovarian function suppression tamoxifen or ovarian function suppression exemestane or aromatase inhibitor. Then the text trial was a two-arm trial, again, premenopausal women, ER positive, who were or were not going to receive chemotherapy. And their randomization was to two arms, as everybody had made the decision that those patients would have ovarian function suppression. So it was ovarian function suppression tamoxifen or ovarian function suppression plus exemestane. So what we in the steering committee of those trials decided was to combine two of the arms of soft with the two arms of text, looking at ovarian function suppression TAM or ovarian function suppression exemestin. So those data were presented at ASCO, demonstrating that the exemestin arm patients did better than those who received tamoxifen. 
There's, however, a couple of factors that I think we should think about. Number one, the data from Softex are different than the data from another trial that had been reported in the New England Journal of Medicine, ABCSG12, which appeared to suggest the opposite. That trial suggested that tamoxifen was better than an aromatase inhibitor. But there were some caveats to that trial in which the duration of the hormonal therapy was shorter, but still it's something that we should note. But I think the most important aspect for us to think about in this combined analysis is that we still do not know if ovarian function suppression should be recommended for all patients. So if you're gonna recommend ovarian function suppression, exemestin is certainly a consideration. So I guess we should also mention at least this analysis, we didn't see a survival benefit. A very good point to bring up. That is part of the manuscript and something important to discuss with our patients. So can you describe a patient where you would use ovarian suppression in an AI? Right now, you know, in the clinic, we are not recommending ovarian function suppression as standard of care, especially now that we know that the results of soft are just a few months away from us. So even if we have a patient today, we'll wait until December until we hear the data. And at that time, we could institute ovarian function suppression. You know, one of the things, Niels, is that pushing, quote-unquote, women to menopause can be really tough from the patient's symptomatology and quality of life. So we must be very careful with that decision. And, of course, this concept of ovarian suppression in AI is something done in metastatic disease all the time, obviously a much shorter time on treatment. What do you see, though, in terms of symptomatology when you add the AI in? Is it a lot worse or not that much different? I tell you, it's worse. You know, the patients really feel that there's, you know, potential for more vaginal dryness, achiness, and it's going to be, again, a lot easier. If we have the data that it improves progression-free or disease-free survival in a significant way, then I think patients are going to be willing to undergo these increased toxicities. But right now, I think we can wait a few months. What about a patient with a contraindication to tamoxifen, a patient with a previous thrombosis, for example? Yeah, that would be really a patient who could be considered for their approaches, such as ovarian function suppression and then AI. But of note is that AIs can also be associated with some thrombosis, but it's really less than tamoxifen. That's interesting. I didn't know that. You mentioned the issue of fertility that comes up in younger women. We saw an interesting study at ASCO looking at LHRH agonist therapy during chemo. Can you talk about what they looked at there and what you think it means? A tremendously important issue to consider for all of our premenopausal women who want to maintain their fertility as part of treatment. So if we want to proceed with ovarian function suppression, you know, certainly LHRH agonists are the appropriate consideration so that fertility could be maintained. And studies have demonstrated that some of these women really can proceed with pregnancy after these drugs are discontinued. So I think it's a good consideration. Is it something that you did or you have done or would do? This is something that we have done. So we have recommended that patients visit our fertility experts to collaborate in that discussion. So another issue related to premenopausal hormonal therapy, now it's been out there a while, a couple of years, is the issue of duration of tamoxifen and whether to go beyond five years. We had the Adam and Atlas data that were presented. I'm curious how that's all fleshed out nowadays in your own practice. What are you doing when people get to five years of hormonal therapy, tamoxifen or otherwise? Yeah, you know, the data from Atom and Atlas are consistent pretty much with the data from the MA17, which showed that, you know, even after five years of tamoxifen, adding five years of an aromatase inhibitor was beneficial. So we have now these three trials showing that longer duration is something to be considered. 
But the issue is, you know, what group of patients really needs duration beyond five years? And what we're thinking about is approaching this in two ways. Number one, are there gene profiles that will give us information related to what we call a residual risk after five years of therapy? And there are essentially three of those markers that have been used that we have a little bit of data on. One of them is actually the Oncotype DX. Data are evolving with PAM50. Data are evolving with the BCI another profile that exists. Now, these other ones, though, like the Oncotype and the PAM50, this is the same study that's done nowadays or can be done, is done on the primary. That is correct, yes. Same genes. The same genes, same that is genes. right. Same genes. So, for example, like with the Oncotype, how does that correlate? Is it high risk, gives you higher risk of recurrence after five years? Exactly. So that's exactly what is being looked at. You know, what degree of expression of those genes predicts for a higher relapse after five years. And there will be forthcoming data that will solidify the specific numbers. Very important for practice. But, you know, we're using another way, and it is clinical pathological parameters. So if we have a patient with a large number of nodes, which we think has a higher risk overall of developing recurrence, those are the patients that, at least today, we're actually considering for longer than five years without definite proof, because there are some studies that have completed accrual that we're waiting for. But one of the issues that we know is that patients with estrogen receptor or hormone receptor positive breast cancer may develop relapse for up to 20 years later. So these patients tend to have a risk of relapse that is about, in estimate, 2% per year if they have no negative disease or 4% per year if they have no positive disease. So we can use you know, that statistical analysis to discuss with the patients, well, if we continue beyond five years, this is the benefit you may obtain. Where are we today right now in terms of using these markers up front? From what I can tell, you know, reading like St. Gallen, et cetera, it seems like there's a lot of interest in stuff like Key 67 and all in Europe, whereas the U.S. is much more tied into Oncotype. What do you think the science, and some of this might be economically derived, I'm not sure, but in terms of the science, first of all, are there any assays outside of Oncotype that you utilize in your own practice outside a trial setting? Yeah, you know, we do not use Key67, and the reason for that is that it has been an unreliable test. Intrapathologies, interpathologists, so although it's a quote-unquote easy test to order, we just need to wait until there's more reliability. So we've been focusing on kind of more quantitative tests and doing just gene analysis, and that's why the Oncotype DX has been very helpful. We have a fairly recently approved test called the Prosigna, which uses the PAM50 nanostring type of analysis in combination with clinical parameters, which we are considering starting to use in our clinic. Right now, this test is offered at some laboratories. The PAM50, the one thing that it's hard to find, at least maybe I'm not aware of it, are data predicting benefit from treatment, which is the reason a lot of people use their recurrence score. Does that type of data exist for the PAM50, or is it more prognostic? Yeah, right now it's prognostic for the patients who are receiving hormonal therapy. And the reason for that is that, you know, there are essentially no trials available now to really look at this question of hormonal therapy alone versus hormonal therapy with chemotherapy that I believe, you know, can be used for testing. But there's hope in that we have the tumor specimens for the TaylorX study in which patients were enrolled based on the Oncotype DX result to receive hormones or chemotherapy hormones. There will also be the availability of tissue specimen and outcome 
in the context of the Mind Act trial conducted mainly in Europe. So I think with PAM50, it's more than with PAM50, it's called this prosignacy. We have prognosis, per se, prognosis in patients receiving hormonal therapy alone because the studies that were used for analysis of prosigna were some of the same studies used for the Oncotype DX, and they included the ATAC trial, they included the ABCSG8 trial. But for PAM50 or the prosigna assay, they have not done the analysis on the one trial that allowed you to look at predictability, and that was the NSABP B20, because that's the one that compared chemotherapy versus hormonal treatment. Uh, so I think, you know, the essence of all of this is that there has been an evolution of science. We've had the Oncotype DX test available for 10 years. Other tests are being developed, and we're going to have to see through more studies if one is going to be better than another or if they're going to be complementary. Right now in your own practice, one of the controversial issues about this area is using it in high-risk situations, mainly node positive. There's the Rx Ponder trial out there that's going to give us some data on that. Are there any situations, patients with, you know, small nodal burden, one node, maybe they're older, you really don't want to give them chemo, where you would use Oncotype in node positive patient? We would consider that, but we're not doing it on a routine basis. We're really using the Oncotype DX or other panels in the setting of node negative disease. We talked a lot before about new advances with HER2 positive disease. What about the original target for targeted therapy, ER? In advanced disease, oncologists now often are using the mTOR inhibitor Everlimus with endocrine therapy. This is now being tested in the adjuvant setting. What about this and other ER-related new strategies? The results of the Bolero 2 were impressive in terms of Everlimus adding to hormonal therapy in the metastatic setting in terms of improving progression-free survival. However, it did not improve overall survival. This was just presented a few months ago at the ECHO meeting. But still, the significant improvement in PFS, progression-free survival, led to the development of the adjuvant study. And I think it's an important target to look at in the adjuvant setting, and I support that trial. However, we have to think of what's coming next. And what's coming next in the setting of hormonal therapy is the use of CDK4 inhibitors, such as pabosiclib. And as, as you know, some people may not know, but the company has applied to the FDA for an approval of this agent in the metastatic setting. And we and others in the Alliance, especially in the Alliance Foundation, are working to develop an adjuvant trial that will be testing pabosiclib in the setting of ER-positive disease.